We are in the Minor Prophets this morning, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, I got an email from my buddy Rick. He said the children were lined up in the cafeteria of a Jewish school for lunch. At the head of the table was a large pile of apples. The rabbi made a note, posted it on the apple tray, take only one, God is watching. Moving further along the lunch line, at the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. A child had written a note saying, take all you want, God is watching the apples. (laughs) Now the kid needed to grow in his theology a little bit and understand the eyes of the Lord are not only on the apples, he's on the chocolate chip cookies and he's also checking to see if you ate your spinach. So with that idea of the eyes of the Lord being everywhere, let's look specifically at the minor prophets And I want to pull off the shelf again the book of Hosea. I want to open that book up. And we're going to look at some of the same. We've got the same outline as last week. Even though we have different material. So don't look and say, I've read this before. Different material behind the outline. But Hosea is a book that is rich in metaphors. And it's useful for us to dig into those metaphors because... They come from a different culture and a different time than we do. And so some explanation is helpful. Today is MLK Day. Happy Martin Luther King Day to everyone who celebrates the, 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 the sacrificial life that he led as best as he could to try to bring people to a better understanding of how to treat each other in God's eyes. But I didn't grow up in the African-American culture. Uh, uh, I, I've, I, I've had friends, very close friends who are African-American, but within the African-American culture, there are cultural aspects and identity and experiences that, that aren't natural to me in my life. And so I have spent time, uh, trying to learn those, but it's, sitting down with people who grew up in that culture saying, tell me what it was like to grow up. Tell me what it was like to grow up as uh, someone with black skin or brown skin in Chicago or in Nashville or in Texas. You know, give me a feel for what it was like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Because we can learn something if we learn their culture. It's no different looking back at biblical Israel during the time of Hosea. So we're in the 700s, mid-700s B.C. And it's a different culture. And so we need to try to plug in and understand those metaphors. What I'd like to do first is just give you a little bit more to nibble on about what metaphors are and why they're important. And then we will look at some additional metaphors in Hosea that we did not look at last week. And we'll end with our points for home as we typically do. So you with me? Let's start with metaphors. Now, if I say this to you, I would love a light bulb to go off in your head. And if I said that, how many of you would know what I mean? And yet what I've done is I've used a metaphor. The light bulb going off in your head is a metaphor. But we think in metaphors. It's not simply a useful tool. It's something that actually comes out of us without even knowing it. I got emails this last week of people saying, I never realized I do think in metaphors. And now it's just started to come to my attention. And and I had this one and I had this one and I had this one. All just within an hour of class on Sunday. Our brains are wired that way. You see, metaphors will take one set of ideas and link it up to another set of ideas. And our brain provides that link. Now, it's not just that way today. Let's go back 500 years, 400 some odd years. Let's go back to William Shakespeare. This is a reconstruction of the Globe Theater, Shakespeare's Globe Theater. And if we were to be there and we were to see As You Like It, one of his plays, in Act 2, Scene 7, Jacques comes in and he's got a speech to give. 
Jacques' speech, he says, all the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. That's a metaphor. It's a metaphor that's very appropriate when you're watching a play. He's built into the play the metaphor to make everybody think about this. That the world's a stage. And we're just people on the stage. We enter, we exit, as we do in life. And as we do in this world. And he goes on to say, one man in his time plays many different parts. You've got a lot of different roles. His acts being seven different ages. And he walks through the age of an infant. And he uses metaphors for the seven different ages of a person. All metaphors. Now, the Bible and prophets are all ultimately, end of the day, net-net, We're talking about God communicating to people. And in our communication forms that work in our brain that we experience, there are lots of different forms of communicating. If I am to give you those forms, you know, we can communicate in poetry. Roses are red, violets are blue, most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. I mean, you you got poetry. You've got not just poetry, you've got prose. Someone can write a novel, someone can write history. They write in prose. We've got metaphors. We've got similes. We've got stories that can be used, like parables. Jesus told parables. We can communicate through questions, the Socratic method, named after Socrates, who was famous for leading people to conclusions simply by asking them questions. That's the way most law school classes are taught. We've got instructions. Uh, uh, We were in um, Florida, and um, we were getting to celebrate Christmas, And among the Christmas gifts, my mom had gotten uh, our grandson, John Henry, who is three years old, this massive tractor thing that's got his name on it, but it's basically to teach kids how to put together and build a tractor, which at three years old means I have to learn how to put together and build a tractor. And fortunately, there's an instruction manual. I mean, I know where the wheels go, but beyond that, I kind of needed the instruction. Actually, I didn't. I said to my son-in-law, JT, help your son build the tractor. And I watched, but he had to use the instruction manual. We have instructions. We have speeches that we communicate in. We communicate in songs. And songs will touch you in a way that some of the rest of these don't. Now, what we need to understand in our Bible study is that God uses all of these different kinds of communicating when he communicates to us in his word. And so as we understand that God's using them all, it gives us an ability today to zoom in on metaphors and similes that are used in Hosea. Now, these aren't Um, um, just out there I want to make sure that that we get what it is so a metaphor is is where you've got a is most useful when you've got a grid of information or a grid of ideas or a, a bundle of things and you help people understand one set of things as being like another set of things so life is like a competition Okay, Paul says it. Paul talks about having run the race, finished the race. He talks about telling us to run the race, to train for the race. It's not just Paul talking about life as competition. We do that today. I mean, we label people, hey, that, he's a winner. A winner? Did he get a lotto ticket? No, a winner in the sense that he is successful. 
Sometimes I feel like a loser. What does that mean? That I played Lewis in racquetball and lost? Heavens no, that can't happen. It means that... <laughs> it's just in case he listens to this lesson. He goes to North Klein. It, it means that, you know, I just don't feel... I feel like... You know, we look at... We can use those metaphors without even realizing what they are. Now it's interesting because Hosea 12 verse 10 says this. God says, I spoke... To the prophets, it was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. Parables. That word for parables is dama. It's this, the, the root is, are these three letters, dama. And dama, you know, we think of parables like Jesus because Jesus is the most famous parable teller. But a New Testament parable of Jesus is different than this word dama. It's different than the idea of what a parable was in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the culture of Amos' day. This word dama means to be like something or to resemble something. It means assimilate. Or a metaphor using today's modern language. So this is saying that God is the one who gave Hosea, this prophet, and the other prophets, these metaphors. God is communicating these. This wasn't God telling Hosea, hey, come up with a way to tell the people this. This is God saying to Hosea, here's my metaphor for what's going on, tell it to the people. So this Duma is to be like or to resemble a simile or a metaphor. Let me give you some other examples of where it's used in scripture. In Psalm 144, 4, it says, man is Duma, a breath. His days Duma, a passing shadow. It means man's like a breath. It's not a parable. Man is parable of breath. It, it, it's just saying that it, it, it resemb man resembles a breath. Connect man with breath, his days like a passing shadow because it's there and then it just dissolves away. It doesn't last. Dama. Here's another passage from the Song of Solomon. One, one, chapter 1, verse 9. I compare you. My love, I dama my love to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. I mean, it's, it's a, a metaphor. My metaphor for you. Now, I don't ever call my wife a horse. I think I've heard her tell me to quit horsing around. But you see, even horsing around is a metaphor. So we just use these metaphors. God uses metaphors. I think it's so wonderful how we can find depths in the Bible that you can live 50, 60 years studying it and, and never plumb the depths of what's in Scripture. God spoke to the prophets. God's the one who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave metaphors and similes. It's another way to translate Damah. And it's very appropriate because Hosea is a book chock full of metaphors. Stuffed, if I could use a cooking metaphor. Stuffed. That's like Thanksgiving. Stuffed with metaphors. So let's look at some that we didn't look at last week. Last week we really concentrated on this, 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 whoops, sorry. Last week, we really concentrated on this theme of, of whoredom, of an unfaithful wife, which is laced throughout the book. But I want to set that aside, and I want to look today mainly at some agricultural metaphors. Now, Hosea chapter 2, verse 3, has this stunning passage. I mean, we think about God. If I were to ask you, to, to, what are the traits of God? I'll bet you pretty soon many of you would say love. God is love. John says it, right? First John. 
Look at this passage about God is love. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Well, that's hard to fit into the verses of your song, God is love. That's a pretty tough metaphor. And that metaphor about a a parched land, a wilderness, to an agricultural people who were looking not for a wilderness and a parched land, but a fertile valley with a good loam and nice moisture to grow good crops. This is a really, really tough passage. It's actually placed within a larger metaphor. Hosea chapter 2 is a metaphor of God putting Israel on trial. I like Hosea 2 because I get the courtroom part. Now, when I try cases in a courtroom, I was in the Southern District of New York on Friday. What's today? Sunday? Okay, but just till midnight, right? All right. Friday, I'm in the Southern District of New York in federal court. And I have two different hearings in front of two different judges. And in one hearing in front of one judge, uh, we're in her courtroom, Judge Parker, and uh, uh, I stand up to address the court. And she tells me, please sit down in this courtroom. The people behind you can't see if you stand up. I know it's respectful. I know you're supposed to stand up, but I want you to stay seated. So it was killing me, but I forced myself every time I had to speak out just to stay seated because it's so adverse to my nature. Then that hearing ends and we go to Judge Coates' court. And so she calls on me right out of the box and I start to answer her and I'm still in stay seated mode. And she goes, And I stood up and I said, I am so sorry, Your Honor. I've just been in Judge Parker's court and she's telling me this. And so I'm in the wrong mode. And she laughed and and I stood up. I can handle that. But the courts back then didn't have dedicated courtrooms. The courts back then were generally held at the city gates. The elders were the judges usually. Judges and jury. And the trials were held there and they were open public trials. So you've got a courtroom scene in Hosea chapter 2. And God is the husband who has brought a case against Israel, his wife, for being unfaithful. The law is clear. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's Exodus 20 verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And yet, Israel has committed adultery adultery against God the whole experience of God at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel is written in some ways like an an Israelite wedding of the day where God takes his covenant God takes his oath and sets it before Israel and Israel says I do and they're married and then Israel violates her oath of marriage and, and that crime, if you will, is what Hosea chapter 2 has in court. Now, under Israeli, Israeli-Israelite law, the husband had certain responsibilities towards the wife. The husband was responsible for seeing that there was food, for seeing that there was clothing, for seeing that there was provision. And that went hand in hand with the intimacy that a husband owed to his wife. And the wife had responsibilities as well. The wife was supposed to be faithful to her husband. She was supposed to care for her husband and the household. She was supposed to rear the children. Take care of the children. Have the children. When God blessed them with them. So those were the wife's responsibilities. Now within Hosea chapter 2, what you read about in the trial is that Israel, the wife, had utterly failed in her obligations. 
She wasn't faithful. She wasn't caring. She wasn't nurturing. She was none of those things. She was no longer a wife to God. And so it's within this framework that God announces the judgment. And the judgment from the trial is, if you're not my wife, I'm not your husband. I'm not going to be providing you the food. I'm not going to be providing you the clothing. I'm not going to give you provision in this world. You are on your own. You don't want to be married to me. You are on your own. And it's within that framework that we have this metaphor. If she's going to be that way and she wants to go on her own, that's fine. But I'm not clothing her. She'll have no clothes from me. I'll strip her naked, make it like she was when she was born. I'm going to, I'm not providing for her the rich and fertile loam. I'm not giving her those things. I'm not taking care of her. She doesn't want to be my wife. I'm not going to be her husband. And that may seem harsh to us, but it shouldn't seem harsh to us. Because he's saying, I'm not going to feed the monster. Can you imagine if you had a child who was off doing drugs, just destroying their life, cavorting with the wrong people, spending their money in a wasteful fashion, and they come to you and say, hey, dad or mom, I've run out of money for my drug habit. Can I have some more? It is not harsh for the parent to say, no, I did not rear you to nurture and take care of you when you're doing this with it. I think tough love is the modern phrase. Don't feed the monster. That's what God's saying. You want to go that way? You have the choice. You go that way. But do not expect me to follow you with all the blessings of this world. Agricultural metaphor, the next one. The next one we'll cover. There's a bunch in there I don't have time to cover. Hosea 8, 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. For if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. How many of you have ever had a garden? I love a garden. I love a garden. My gardens have always started out after you prepare the ground by picking out your seeds or seedlings and planting them. Kind of hard to have a garden if you don't plant it. But you pick out your seeds and you plant it. I typically don't go out there and plant it when it's raining. And you pick the right season to plant the right crop. You can't grow tomatoes in the winter in Houston, but you can grow lettuce. You can't grow lettuce in the summer in Houston, but you can grow tomatoes until it gets really hot, and then you've got to switch to okra. That's just the way it is. And you pick it, and you, you, you plant it, and you grow it. Well, back in the day of Hosea, farming was done a little differently. They would take a day that has a gentle breeze. And having already prepared the ground, they would take a bag of seed and they would walk and they would sling the seed. And the gentle breeze would help disperse the seed into the ground. So that's the way they did it. But Hosea says, you're sowing the wind. What's he talking about here? Now, the word for wind is ruach. Here it is, right here. R-U-A-C-H sound. Ruach. And some of you are saying, ruach, that's the word for spirit. Yes, it is. Different context. Ruach has a, remember, we've got about 6,000 Hebrew words that cover about 
50,000 English words, so they do a lot of duty. They sow the wind. Ruach can be a breeze or a wind, but it's also foolishness. It's something without substance. Now, the breeze helps you sow seed back in the day, but they're not using the breeze to sow seed. They're sowing the breeze. That, to a farmer, is ridiculous. Let's go second layer of the meaning, though. Ruach also means something without substance. Have you ever heard that someone's full of hot air? It's the same type of of usage as ruach, wind. Uh, Isaiah 41, 29. Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their mental images are empty wind. And the Hebrew just says ruach. But they add the word empty before wind to let you know that it's that senseless meaning. Bunch of hot air. Nothing. There's no real substance there. Clara would be saying, where's the beef? There is none. (laughs) Then Hosea takes it a step further. He says, they sow the wind. They're going to reap the whirlwind. We had, I interviewed him here in class. He's a friend. He's a great guy. Dr. McIntosh. He spoke at the library a couple of times. He wrote, I believe, a commentary on Hosea. And um, after he had visited once or twice, he wrote me this really nice Hebrew poem. I mean, hand wrote it out in Hebrew because he was a Hebrew professor for 40 plus years at Cambridge and he just assumed I'd be able to read it. Um, Was not easy to read. And fortunately, he then sent me a translation, and I found out how wrong I was. But I thought for a minute there, he was complimenting me until I realized he'd written a commentary on Hosea, because he called me a supa, a supa is a whirlwind, or a tornado, or a gale. And I think he just meant that I was trying to do too many things or something if I read it in context but, but the tornado is not friendly to the crops the whirlwind is not a good thing to a farmer and so when Hosea says they sow the wind they'll reap the whirlwind he's talking about the, 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 the result of their life if you live your life doing things that are nothing things of no value things that don't have eternal count to them you're going to reap the whirlwind which is going to blow your house down Jesus said it this way the wise man builds his house on the rock and the winds come and the house stands firm the foolish man builds his house on the sand the winds come and the house falls down you sow the wind you do useless things with your time and your energy and your money And you will reap the whirlwind. And even if you reap something decent, the standing grain will have no heads. It might look like you're getting something, but you've destroyed the crop. You're not going to get any flour. And even if you got something, it's going to someone else. That's the toughness of this metaphor. This same type of metaphor is picked back up in Hosea chapter 10. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Plant righteousness, not wind. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. When I was four years old, we lived in Abilene, Texas. Um... And I don't have a lot of memories of being four, but I have some. One of my memories, I remember if you walked out of the back door of our house into our backyard and you turned left 
around the side of the house, the left side of the house, dad had, at mom's request, prepared a little square of dirt that I would guess was about the size of this table. And he had prepared it for a garden because mom was going to teach me something. So mom took me out there and we planted tomato seeds. Now we planted tomato seeds, I found out later, because a tornado had come through Abilene and I had been scared to death and um, I had thought they had said a tomato instead of a tornado. So I had envisioned we were hiding because this massive tomato was descending upon our community bent on destroying us. So mom wanted me to better understand tomatoes, but she wanted me to understand gardening as well. We've got some friends uh, uh, I met uh, from Texas Tech this morning. Lubbock knows tornadoes as well. Um, Mom wanted me to understand if you just plant the tomato seed, a tomato plant's going to grow up. You don't plant a tomato seed, though, and expect to harvest parsley. You don't plant a tomato seed and expect broccoli to grow. That's gardening 101. Gardening for a four-year-old. So if we sow for ourselves righteousness... Sedekat is the word here for righteousness. Sedek is, is righteous. Righteousness, if we sow for ourselves righteousness. Sedekat has got uh, not just righteousness, but it's also honesty. It's the word for honesty. It's a word that can mean justice. It can mean loyalty to God, loyalty to your community. If you sow for yourself righteousness, honesty, justice, faithfulness... If you'll sow those things, you will reap steadfast love. Now to do this, you got to get your heart and your mind in the right place. You got to break up the fallow ground. Mom didn't take me in the backyard and we didn't drop the tomato seeds where the grass was. Dad had prepared the ground. But we need to do that. We need to sow honesty and justice, loyalty to God and loyalty to the community. There are some things in this life that I do not want to do, that I know God wants me to do. And I don't want to do them. I just don't. I confess right now, there are things in this life that I know for a fact God wants me to do that I don't want to do. So the question becomes, do I want to sow loyalty to God or not? Or do I want to sow the wind? Do I want to treat people fairly? Or do I want to take advantage of people? One is sowing righteousness, justice. The other is sowing the wind. What do I want to do? I need to break up the fallow ground. Because I need to seek the Lord. Whoops, go back. Seek the Lord so he'll come and rain righteousness on you. This is not the whirlwind. This is the good rain that causes your life to grow. All right. He continues and he says, You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You plant the wrong stuff, you're going to grow the wrong stuff. You've eaten the fruit of lies. You're going to sow lies, you're going to be the recipient of lies. By the way, that works in the Bible just as much as it does in our life. Remember poor Jacob, the one who deceived his brother and lied to his daddy? Then he gets off to marry Rachel. And Laban, Rachel's daddy, says, well, you got to serve me seven years. Serves him seven years. They have the big wedding celebration. He drinks too much. He goes into the tent, not realizing it wasn't Rachel, it was her older sister. And he married the wrong woman. He got tricked. 
he had lied to his daddy and said he was his brother. And it turned around and he got lied to. And he wound up having to serve another seven years to get the woman he wanted. You want to sow lies? You're going to eat the fruit of lies. You want to trust in your own way? You want to trust in those things you've got around you that make you feel strong? You're just going to lose the war. Those are the metaphors. But it causes me to ask, what am I sowing in my garden? Where am I on this? More agricultural metaphors. We're going to go through these quick because I want to get to, the, to I want to get everything in. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. You become like the things you worship. You want to worship something detestable, you'll become detestable like the thing you, you love. You want to worship money, you'll become greedy. You want to worship popularity, you will destroy relationships. It, 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 it's just a fact. You become like the things you worship. You want to worship God, you'll become godly. And he says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Now, wilderness is not known to be a great vineyard. To find grapes in the wilderness is incredibly rare. God says, I found Israel as a rare, one of a kind. There's no one like Israel. I chose Israel. I picked Israel out unlike anybody else. Stands out like a grape in the wilderness. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. And the, the word there for fruit is not the normal fig. It's, it's that first fig that in, in Israel the figs generally ripen I believe around August into September. But sometimes you get some first figs on last year's growth that come in in June. Not often. That's a rare thing. And that's the way Israel was. They were a rarity. They were something so unusual. But they came to Baal Peor and they consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And that's contained in the Exodus story. That Israel goes out and, and they're getting, they, they get, I think it was in Moab, where they, they start worshiping the God of fertility. So that they can get into the promised land and have fertile crops and, and their livestock will grow. And they consecrated themselves to this thing of shame. And they became detestable. Like the thing they loved. And they were destroyed by the way. It's not a good story. But this reminds me, I've used the example over and over. It's just one of those things that triggers into my brain. The duffel puds. In Voyage of the Dawn Treader, don't be a duffel pud. The duffel puds were the people who, the magician is, is in that metaphor, God. And the duffel puds are these one-legged creatures that the magician takes care of. But they don't trust the magician. They think he's out to ruin their life. And so the, they, they've got to have water and, and so the magician causes the stream. He diverts a stream so that it comes right by their village. So all they've got to do is take their buckets and pails and scoop up the water. Well, they're convinced the magician's tricking them. He couldn't really be that nice. So they take their buckets and they hop on their one foot a mile away to fill them up. And then they hop all the way back with, of course, the water sloshing out of the bucket. So when they get back, they got about this much in the bucket. But that's okay. They weren't tricked by the magician. And we're that way with God sometimes. It's like God says, do this. <laughs> no, I know better. No, you really don't. Yeah, but, but I can see. I hear I've got to do something wrong. No, you really don't. Make your decisions. Don't be a duffel putt. Realize how rare you are. And that God has looked for you to do something very special. 
Now let's leave the agricultural metaphors aside and look for a moment at household metaphors, especially one that, that I find incredibly moving. It's found in Hosea chapter 11. Look at this with me. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet I'm the one who taught Ephraim. Ephraim is another word Hosea uses for Israel. I'm the one who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms and they didn't know it was me who healed them. It's a tremendous metaphor. I want that metaphor to touch you. I want it to touch you with the tenderness of God. Because I'm convinced God has done so much for us that we don't even realize was him. So what I want to do is I want to play for you a song. This is a song by, uh, the group was called Lamb. Um, it's basically Joel Chernoff. And for those of you who were in our class way back when we were in the chapel, I brought him in for one or two Sundays um, to, to sing and to play. He lives in Philadelphia. Joel is a Jew who uh, understands and, and lives with all of his heart and soul and mind that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. And so he is what many people would call a Messianic Jew. He is an incredible individual with an incredible ministry. But he's also like got just really good stuff. So he takes these Jewish scriptures and he puts them to music. Sometimes they're in Hebrew. This one's in English. But the mood he's able to get here. You know, I've said we communicate in different ways and songs can touch you in ways that, that just words don't. I want this song to touch you like that. So let's listen to this song together. It's from the album Lamb 3. And it's the Hosea passage. When Israel is Can we turn it up a little? From Egypt I did call him to be my son For it was I who taught if to walk And I picked him up in my arms Yet they did not know that it was I who loved him Words of love I did lead thee For I was to thee as one who lifts a yoke And bending down I lovingly fed him To it I bow to la 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 To la 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 They didn't have high chairs Bending down I lovingly fed him Where they feed kids How can I give you up my son how can I give you a peace I am? For my heart's overturned, my compassions are kindled, that again with my anger be burned. Be burned. Be burned. When Israel was young, I loved him. From Egypt I did call him to my son, for it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, and I who picked him up in my arms. Yet they did not know that it was I love thee. The tender cords of love I did lead thee, for I was to thee my as one who kissed you, and bending down I loved you, baby. La la la, la 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 la. Um, gives you a different feel for it. But look back at this passage. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, by their arms, but they didn't know that it was I who healed them. 
if you go to the actual passage in Hosea, you've got um, a little bit more than I put on the PowerPoint, but you had it in the song. Um, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. Does that passage remind you of anything in the New Testament? Yeah, it's quoted as a reference to Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. God called Israel out of Egypt as a rare jewel. But Israel fled from God. God called Jesus out of Egypt, a rare jewel. Jesus did not flee from God. Jesus embraced God. And the gospel wants us to draw that contrast between the faithfulness of Jesus and the unfaithfulness of the rest of us. Because it is by the faithfulness of Jesus that we are made whole. You see, that compassion of God, that compassion of God should touch us, that he was the one who taught us how to walk, who held on to our little hands, when we fall down would pick us up, would, would, would feed us by bending down. And we don't want to be people who don't know who he was and what he did for us. We don't want to live this life blind to that, sowing wind, when he wants to give us purpose. Did you know, fill in your name, did you know there's not one person in here where God doesn't have purpose for you in your life? Don't be deceived by the breeze that it's going to sow itself. That's the whirlwind. You want the good seed sown because that's how you'll grow in those blessings and how you'll fulfill the purposes of God in your life. Last household metaphor and then we'll do points for home and we're out of here. Hosea 7.4. They're all adulterers. That was last week we were big on that. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. Most of us don't use wood-burning ovens, but the wood-burning ovens back then are the closest thing I can think of to them is a tandoor oven. Or if you like tandoori chicken and stuff like that that's cooked in a tandoor oven or non bread. With hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. Go back to the other passage. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. Here's what it's talking about. You're making bread. You you, you knead the dough. Meanwhile, you've already started the fire in this oven, wood-burning oven. So you get your wood in there and you start it. And what you should be doing is feeding the fire as you go along. Because what cooks the bread is the side of the oven. You get that oven so hot that the oven itself is what's cooking the bread. So he's saying that, that you're like a heated oven. you got the oven so hot that nobody's got to tend to the fire. They don't have to keep feeding the, 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 the logs into the fire. From the time they need the bread until it's leavened. It's ready to go in there. Which takes hours and hours when you don't have the goofy yeast we have now that is instant and does it like that so he's saying you got the oven so stinking hot but it's not burning for God it's burning with intrigue all night their anger smolders in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire And this is the intensity. And we're not to have this intensity that that comes out of anger and out of sin. It's going to be an intensity of passion for God. 
Hosea is a book that's just crying to wake people up to be passionate about their God. And these metaphors do that. But instead, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. He's a cake that's not turned. Mixes, Balal, this word mixes. Balal can mean mixing ingredients. You see that in Exodus 29 too. Or it can be mixed up in your brain. Confused. They've confused themselves. They've intermingled, yes. But more than that, they've all gotten confused. They're a cake that's not turned. They were half-baked, to use our metaphor today. So those household metaphors, there are a few more, but we don't have time for them. Instead, we need to uh, uh, skip that page and we'll go home with points for home. Here they are. I just want to ask you, what's sowing in your garden? What are you putting in there? Because you can sow the wind and reap the whirlwind, or you can sow justice and loyalty and rightness with God, and you can reap steadfast love. Point for home two. By, be touched by God's tender love. And I, yeah, look... Some of you more so than me, but everybody can say, well, wait a minute. I've had a pretty harsh turn of events in this life. That's true. Life is not your friend. The question is, how has God helped you through those times? And what does he still have for you in your life? More than anybody else, if you look at those times, you can testify, this life is not my friend. And then last but not least, we need to be intense in our love for God, not love for this world. And that's our journey through Hosea today. Would you join me in a word of prayer, and I'll see you guys next Sunday, God willing. Uh, Lord, in the name of Jesus, the faithful Son, we come before you and we confess our sin, we confess our inadequacy, we confess uh, uh, what must frustrate you to no end. But Lord, we seek your love and we seek to embrace you and we seek to praise you. And where we fall so short, would you please give us your aid. Bend down and lovingly feed us. And may we give you all the glory and praise and honor through your son Jesus. We pray, amen.